Good morning, everybody. Uh, maybe if you could turn in your Bible to uh, Philippians. We're continuing our series today there, To Live as Christ. And we're going to be looking at chapter 2. I need to say from the outset that I am going to completely bomb in trying to preach this passage to you this morning. It's not because necessarily I'm in a bad way or there's something wrong. It's just that the passage is too great. Okay? So let's just put that out there right from the beginning. I wonder if you ever thought to yourself, I wish I could see God for myself. I wish I could see Jesus with my own eyes. If I could just see him. Everything about my life would surely be different. Life itself would be different. I would be more focused in my faith, more devoted in my love, more joyful in my praise, more serious in my commitment, and most likely a mix of all those things. If I could just see Jesus for myself. Well, let me suggest to you that's exactly the opportunity that we have before us today from the scriptures. By God's living word and with the help of his Holy Spirit, we can actually see Jesus for ourselves. And friends, I would argue that is our greatest need and so our highest prayer. So have a look in Philippians 2, starting at verse 4. And be prayerful as you hear the word of God, the living word of God read. Be prayerful as you listen that God will help you see Jesus today. Not just in the reading of God's word, but also as we unpack it together. Philippians 2 and verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind that God has given you when he renewed your mind, when he saved you and continues to renew your mind, the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, here we go. You ready to climb? Here you go. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse, eight, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come to you this morning with your word in our hands and your spirit in our hearts 
And we ask you, Father, that you would open our eyes to see Jesus in such a way that we will never be the same again. Father, that we would see Jesus for our good and for his glory. And we ask this, Father, in his name. Amen. So two awesome things we see about Jesus here today in this part of God's word. Two awesome things we see about who he is. The first is this. Jesus is our gracious redeemer. Hopefully you've already picked up that what we see here in this passage ought to literally blow our minds, both because of what it reveals to us about Jesus and because of the fact that he would actually do what it says he has done for us. Those two things should blow our minds, who he is and what he's done. Have a look at verse 5 and 6 again. Having this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though... He was in the form of God. Paul is absolutely clear, isn't he? That Jesus is God. That he is in the form of God. This is who he is. And more to the point, this is who he was before he came into the world, eternally God the Son. Uh, John 1 Uh, picks up the same idea. Perhaps you know these verses, the opening verses of John's Gospel. Different writer, same idea. Uh, We know from John in verse 14 that the word that's referred to here became flesh, so that is another uh, title that's being used for Jesus. What does John say about him in these first couple of verses? Well, he says, in the beginning, ding, 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 bells ringing to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him, not anything, sorry, was not anything made that was made. Paul, the Apostle Paul, years later, the Apostle John, at this point, they are completely in sync about the person of Jesus, who he is. He is God the Son, the eternal Son of God, one with the Father, fully God. But notice the second half of verse 6 and verse 7. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't hang on to that so tightly that he couldn't do the mission God the Father had set for him to do. He emptied himself, we're told, or humbled himself, as the NOV probably has it, in this case, better. Taking the form of of a servant, though he was in the form of God. He takes the form of a servant. How does he do that? By being born in the likeness of men or of flesh. Now, we need to stop here for a minute and take a closer look at actually 
what's being said here because there's a lot going on in verse 7, right? A lot going on. What is Paul saying about Jesus? He says he emptied himself. We need to unpack that a little bit. There is some teaching around that kind of tries to um, assert that what's being said here is that when Jesus walked on earth, he completely emptied himself of his deity or his godness, if you like, living only as a human being empowered by the Holy Spirit while on earth. Um, And that's being taught a lot. In fact, perhaps one of the most influential churches in the world, that being Bethel Church in Redding, California, teaches this very, very clearly. And uh, they basically say that Jesus brought the kingdom as a man to earth in the power of the Holy Spirit because he emptied himself of his deity. And the next step of that particular teaching is, so can you. You can bring the power of the kingdom of God on earth in the power of the Holy Spirit and do exactly what Jesus did. Really? Interestingly enough, the city of Reading can't stand Bethel Church. Do you know why? Because they go all over the city and if anything, anybody's got anything obvious to them, they come to them and say, let's pray and we're going to do it in Jesus' name, in the Spirit, and we're going to do whatever, we're going to fix whatever you got because we can do what Jesus did. Lots of problems with that teaching, right? Lots of problems, but the most serious is this. The most serious is what it does to the gospel itself because Jesus must be fully man and fully God <laughs> if he is to save us. He must be fully man and he must be fully God to save us. If he were not fully man, he couldn't die on the cross for sinners as a man. But if he was not fully God, then his death would not be of infinite value for sinners. His death could not deal with our sin against an infinitely holy God. So he must be fully God and he must be fully man. So it's really kind of important to think through what does Paul mean when he says he emptied himself. It does not mean when he emptied him, that he emptied himself of his divine attributes. When in his humility he became flesh, he did not become less than God. What then? How do we make sense of it? Well, the way it's been consistently understood down through the ages is this. Jesus did not give up a single divine attribute, but rather in his humanity, he set aside some of his divine prerogatives for a time. And notice, friends, that was actually an expression of his sovereignty. What does it say? He emptied himself. No one else did it. To him, he did it. In his humility, as he took on flesh, he set aside some of his divine prerogatives for a period of time. Uh, Millard Erickson, one of our modern day theologians, puts it this way In order to save, to save humanity, Jesus had to do what none other had the power to do take the humble form of human flesh and wrap it around his glorious deity. 
Does that ring any bells for you? Maybe it should. We're halfway through the year, right? Almost. Which means we're halfway to Christmas. Right? Start shopping now, everybody. Right? Halfway to Christmas. And when we come to Christmas, there's a few things we do. Lots of things we do. One of the things we do is we sing carols and one of the, things, one of the carols that we might sing is this one. Christ, Charles Wesley, I think, wrote this. He had it right. He's got his theology pretty sorted. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. There he is in his divinity, his deity, right? Late in time, not late like we're late to church or you know, to a restaurant or whatever. No, no, in terms of the whole of time, later on, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. <gasps> there he is in his humanity. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. This is our gracious Redeemer who has come to rescue us. Now again, all illustrations at this point will bomb as well. But here's the best one I've got to try and kind of bed this down a little bit. Don't know whether you've ever seen the show Undercover Boss. Ever seen that show? Maybe you need to watch a little bit more of Mate or whatever it is. Um, Undercover Boss is a show where the boss humbles himself and becomes one of the staff. The CEO of the company just becomes a worker like everybody else. He sets aside his prerogatives as the boss for a while. He can still call on them any time at the flick of, a, flick of his finger and suddenly exercise those same authorities. But he chooses not to, to come among his staff. And at some point there's the reveal. That's what we have here. What did Jesus do? He took the form of a servant. What was his place before? God. Adored and worshipped by myriads and myriads of angels. And now what is he doing? He's taking the form of a servant. He's being found in the likeness of, of, of men. Found in human form, verse 8 says. Notice the use of the word form, in the form of God, in the form of a servant, in human form. He who is almighty God, the one who is loved and adored by heaven itself. And yet now, he is the one who serves. Do you see how stunning this is? You see why all sermons on this passage are going to bomb, right? How gracious is this? But not only is it stunning and gracious, if you keep looking and you keep reading, it actually becomes shocking and scandalous as well, doesn't it? Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What will his servanthood look like? How will he serve? He'll serve by being obedient. Obedient to what? Obedient to the Father's plan of salvation. And he'll do that to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Now, 
you may or may not know, but the Romans had three methods of capital punishment. Three methods. Number one, decapitation. Off with your head. Number two, burning alive. And number three, crucifixion. Of the three, crucifixion was regarded as the most brutal and the most shameful. This was a death so loathsome that it was reserved only for the worst of criminals. Roman citizens, no matter what they did, could ever be crucified. Yet, the divine man, Jesus himself, would be put to death in this way as he obeyed the Father's plan. There he would hang, naked. Our versions are always sanitised, aren't they? Tidied up a bit, because it is, it's scandalous. It's confronting. There he would hang naked, publicly exposed, viewed as an enemy of the empire and condemned as a blasphemer against God himself. But more than that, there he would have all our sins laid upon him. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. You notice the Apostle Paul uses that little word even. He'd be obedient to the point of death. Even. Even. Even death on a cross. Friends, this is Jesus. You want to see him? Look at him. Don't just look at him, look to him. He is our gracious redeemer. Now some of you are old enough to remember this. This is an upturned uh, solo yacht. I think it was 2007. Unfortunately the man's name was Tony. Tony Bullimore. I think it might have been spelled T-O-N-I. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. Because I'm not that, that's different. Um, this, is, uh, this is where he was. He was actually 2,500 kilometres south of Perth and 1,500 kilometres north of Antarctica. And uh, he'd attempted to unsuccessfully <laughs> sail around the globe. And his heel, sorry, his hull snapped off. He was going fine until his hull snapped off. And apparently the boat went into a, and that's where it ended up. And from what I understand, he is somewhere kind of just about here, underneath the hull. And the Australian Navy was commissioned to go urgently at full speed with whatever resources were necessary to rescue him. Now, I don't know whether you remember, but there was actually quite a backlash at the time. People said he knew what he was getting himself in for. Six million dollars it cost us to rescue him from that boat. There was some backlash. 
Many thought the cost was too great. Tony Bullimore, on the, on the other hand, said, I owe those Australians my life. Can you see what I'm getting at here with the cost of Jesus, our gracious Redeemer? Has it landed for you? Deeply and personally, the lengths that Jesus went for, went to for you, the heights from which he came, the depths to which he was prepared to go, the shame, the humiliation, the curse of sin. Has that landed for you in such a way that you're captivated by him? By what he's done for you, for us, and what that says about God to us. How, how deep must the Father's love be for us, right? And also, do you see how great our need really must be? And how serious our sin actually must be? You know, it's not just a few mistakes we've made. It can't be, can it? It must be more serious than that. If the one who is in the form of God took on the form of a servant and was found in human likeness, I wonder, do we really know what grace is? What mercy is? What it cost? Is it possible that it's actually far bigger, far greater, far more beautiful, far more glorious than we might think, even in our best moments? Is it possible? Do you see why Jesus is to be the centre of our lives as those he has rescued as well? Like it's a no-brainer, right? (laughs) If he's done that to rescue us and make us his own, surely he must have pride of place above everyone and everything. He must. It's not rocket science. But I think you know as well as I do, it won't happen by accident. It'll happen in our lives if they are marked by repentance and faith. And even then it'll happen slowly and progressively, but it'll happen. As we continually and regularly turn from the things that encroach in on his rightful place, and not just turn from those things, but turn afresh to him as the only one worthy of that place and the one who is all we ultimately need. Jesus is our gracious redeemer. Secondly, he is also our glorious king. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've seen what the Son has done. Now we see what the Father does. And what does he do? He raises Jesus from death. He highly exalts him. The word here is hyper, right? You know know when someone's hyperactive, right? This is hyper-exaltation, right? Lifting Jesus high. And as he does so, he gives him the highest name. He vindicates him. He gives him the highest place of honour, the place of unrivaled, unchallenged, Rule. And notice he does so in the whole cosmos, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in heaven, in the heavenly realm where the angelic beings are, on earth where every one of us is, and under the earth, which is, the, which is often referred to as the place of the dead. Even there, Jesus is given the name above every name. Listen to Jesus himself speaking about this prior to the cross. In John 17, 4 and 5, Jesus is praying to God the Father. He says, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. How awesome is that? He's come down. He's been found in appearance as a man. He's done the work. He's heading to the cross. And now he's saying, Father, finish it. Restore me to that place. Peter talks about this after the resurrection when he says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool and then he says let all the house of israel know therefore for certain that god has made him both lord and christ this jesus whom you have crucified therefore god highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name and do you see the purpose for which god did this have a look at verse 9 so that There's your purpose clause. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, there it is again, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The purpose is that Jesus be honoured by everyone, everywhere, for all time. Verse 10 and 11, every knee bowing. Every tongue confessing, everywhere. This is what's coming. Who is bowing? Well, everyone. Who are they bowing to? Jesus, the great saviour and gracious king when he returns, the one who God has exalted, the one who was crucified for sinners but raised to life and is now reigning forever. Who is confessing? Again, Every tongue, everywhere. What are they confessing? 
that Jesus is Christ is Lord to the Father's glory. No matter what he was thought of on earth, he is now exalted and honoured by all. Just a little heads up, this, friends, this is where history is heading. It's called, in Philippians and other places, the day of Christ. Do you remember Philippians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6? For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, when? At the day of Jesus. Philippians 1 verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So that at the name on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's a day that if you know him, I hope you're waiting for and longing for. If you don't know him today, maybe it's a day that you're trying to ignore and hoping will never arrive. But it's a day we are told that God has set and it will come. Now, we sung earlier, didn't we? Uh, when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed, home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah! What a saviour! It's the day of Jesus, our glorious king. Now, just something that's interesting here. We go back to this bowing and confessing again. Who is bowing and who is confessing? Well, everyone everywhere which tells us a couple of things. One, you cannot, you cannot ignore him forever. Uh, those who love Jesus and live for Jesus and those who reject and oppose Jesus cannot ignore him forever. One day he will be exalted and honoured and on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Which means this, in his grace, you can either bow to him now and confess him now as your saviour and Lord, or you can bow to him as your judge then. You can bow to him now and confess him now as your saviour and Lord, or you can Bow to him then and confess him then as your judge. You can repent of your sin now and rejoice in his death on the cross for you now, experiencing the joy of forgiveness from God now and right relationship with him through Jesus now. Or you can refuse him and stand before him in your sins then. And I know which one I'd go for. Did you notice there's a historical gap between verse 9 and 10? God has exalted him, given him the name that's above every name. Present tense already happened. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's future. 
That hasn't happened yet. Why? Why not do it all at once, God? 2 Peter tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, not wishing that any would refuse him until that day and face him as their judge, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, he says, goes on to say, will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is patient with us. Aren't you glad? Man, I turned to Jesus in, let me get this roughly right, 23, born in 96, sorry, 66. What's that, 89? 1989. I turned to Jesus in 1989 and was saved by him then. I'm so glad he was patient until then. I don't know when you turned to him. But whenever it is, aren't you glad he was patient until then? Maybe you haven't turned to him yet. and He's, still be, he's being patient with you right now and he's actually calling you to come to him right now. He's not willing that you should perish. He wants you to come to repentance. He's not slow in fulfilling his plans. He's just astonishingly patient with us. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There is a time when that finishes. So don't wait. Don't wait. Come to him today. Maybe God is calling you today to come to him for salvation. You've, maybe you've seen Jesus today, not perfectly and, and absolutely clearly, but you've caught a glimpse of him and what he's like and he's done for you and what lengths he's gone to to rescue you. Will you bow your knee to him today? Will you stop trying to run your own life today? And will you come and put your trust in him, confessing him as Lord of your life today? For those of us who have been around a bit longer, and as God speaks to us today here in his word, let's just be clear, right? He's not asking us here in his word, did you tick a box on a card or pray a prayer somewhere back in the day? He's asking you this, is your life being lived in joyful submission to Jesus, your Redeemer and King Now, are you bowing your knee to him in reverence and fear? Is he at the helm of your life? Are you confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, placing all your trust in him? Is he your gracious redeemer? And your glorious King. This is what brings the Father glory when we do that. I wish I could see God for myself. 
I wish I could see Jesus with my own eyes. If I could just see him, then everything in my life would be different. Life would be different. I would be more focused in my faith, more devoted in my love, more joyful in my praise, more serious in my godliness and holiness. And most likely a mix of all. Did you see Jesus today in his word? How will you respond to him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are, uh, yeah, we're in difficulty to try and grasp who you are fully. We can't. But what you reveal to us in your word by your spirit is enough to take our breath away, is enough to captivate us for this life and into the life to come, is enough to blow our minds to grip our hearts, to change the very trajectory of our daily living, to produce holiness in us, to cause us to hate sin, the sin for which you came and humbled yourself to address, to be amazed, not just by ourselves, but with others about who, of, as to who you are, what you're like, that you would actually do this. Help us to rest in, your, in the grace that you've shown us. Help us to marvel at the price you've paid for us. Help us to love you, Lord Jesus, more, dearly, as we see you more clearly. Help us now to praise the name that is above every name. We ask this in his name. Amen.